Hi everyone, welcome to the Internist's Guide to, a limited series dedicated to high yield guidelines in internal medicine. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Lisa Dubrovsky from Nephrology on the Cadigo Clinical Practice Guideline for the Evaluation and Management of Chronic Kidney Disease, released in 2012. Lisa Dubrovsky is a nephrologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and Women's College Hospital in Toronto. She's a certified hypertension specialist with the American Society of Hypertension and has advanced training in cardiology, renal, endocrine care. Dr. Dubrovsky's clinical and research interests are in hypertension and cardiovascular risk reduction. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Dubrovsky. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let's dive right in. Can you explain how and why the classification of CKD has changed in the 2012 guidelines compared with the prior 2002 guidelines? Sure. So I think there's two major differences. Uh, the first is, is pretty simple, that the 2012 guidelines actually include the cause or the etiology of the CKD into their classification system. And the second major change is that in 2012, they started including albuminuria into the classification. So aside from having stages based on uh, EGFR, stage one to five, there's also three stages based on the degree of albuminuria. They classify A1 as having normal or no albuminuria, which is equivalent to an ACR of less than 3.4 milligrams per millimolar. Uh, A2 is between 3.4 and 34, which is what's often referred to as microalbuminuria, or the new terminology is moderately increased albuminuria. And then A3 is macroalbuminuria, which is equivalent to an ACR above 34 milligrams per millimolar, or more than 300 milligrams per day if you're looking at a 24-hour collection equivalent. And I think they included ACR because of the prognostic value associated with it when it comes to CKD progression, risk of AKI, and then even risk of cardiovascular mortality associated with it. Interesting. I'm curious. I've noticed that they've removed the term microalbuminuria. Why is that? So, you know, it's funny because I still use it and I still use macroalbuminuria. So they, the terms that they tried to replace it with is moderately increased and severely increased. And I think it was because of an issue like with terminology, like what is microalbumin? You know, microalbumin is not a, a, an entity. So I think that was why they were trying to change that. But I have to say in, in clinical practice, we often still use old terminology. Makes sense. So when calculating GFR, the guidelines suggest using the 2009 CKD epi creatinine equation. Why is this particular equation recommended? Can you explain a bit about the difference between the different equations for estimating GFR? Sure. So there are several available equations using serum creatinine to estimate GFR. Um, and just in general, like all of these equations are felt to be better than just using serum creatinine, particularly if you're using them in the population in which the actual equation was derived. So in order of accuracy, we usually say that CKD-EPI is considered the best, uh, then MDRD, and then Cockroft-Galt, and that's sort of the opposite of the order in which they were developed. So the first one was Cockroft-Galt, and that was developed actually before creatinine assays were standardized across, let's say, even North America or um, by each country. So that makes some difficulties with that equation. And then in 1999, the MDRD equation was developed. And in that equation, they standardized EGFR for creatinine, age, sex, and race. And one thing to keep in mind is that that assay was developed in a population of completely patients with CKD. So the mean GFR was about 40. And so that's why it's particularly less accurate if you try to use it in patients with normal kidney function or GFR in the sort of 60 range. And then CKD-EPI was developed about 10 years later in 2009, and they use the same four variables, so creatinine, age, sex, and race, 
but it's superior when it comes to higher GFRs because it did include patients with normal kidney function and sort of a higher, like a larger spectrum of creatinines or GFRs. So that's why when you're looking at the sort of normal range, that's the preferred equation. When you're looking at patients with more advanced CKD, You'll notice if you use like one of those apps that has multiple equations and gives you that for patients with more advanced CKD, usually if you use CKD, epi, or MDRD, the numbers that it derives will be quite close. And then it's just important to remember that all these equations use creatinine as a marker of kidney function and it's not a perfect marker. And there's always all those issues with muscle mass or high protein intake. And these equations have also been validated in other um, ethnicities because these equations, when I say race, it was really just black, white, or other. So there are limitations to them, but um, in general, CKD epi is the preferred one. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying. The guideline discusses serum cystatin C as a possible alternative to creatinine to measure kidney function. What is cystatin C? Why should it be used to diagnose CKD? Sure. So cystatin C is another endogenous filtration marker like creatinine. So as where creatinine is released by muscle, cystatin C is thought to actually be released by all nucleated cells in the body. And it's filtered by the glomerulus, not reabsorbed, but it is metabolized a bit in the tubules. And so similar to the EGFR equations with creatinine, there's EGFR equations that have been done with cystatin C. Like creatinine has its limitations, it's also not a perfect marker. It can be affected by age, obesity, even diabetes or inflammation. And the 2012 guidelines do recommend it in cases where the EGFR is sort of between 45 and 60, and you're not sure if the patient really has CKD based on the serum creatinine. But I will um, point out for people in Canada that really I've never seen it used here. And actually in 2015, the Canadian Society of Nephrology made like a commentary on these 2012 Kadiko guidelines, and they don't recommend using cystatin C, mainly because it doesn't really, hasn't been shown to really change what we would do for patients. It's not readily available. It's expensive. So for those reasons, it's not really used. So then why do you think it was included in the 2012 guideline to begin with? So it's interesting. I was, I was looking into this because I, I, I don't, I, it's not something I'm used to. And I was even asked colleagues in transplant when I came across this in the guideline, like, have you used this for living donor workups? And they said no. So I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. Like their point is that if the EGFR is between 45 and 60, you could confirm the patient has CKD based on the creatinine. And then you could ask yourself, like, is that really going to change your management? Like if you think a patient has a GFR of 65 or a GFR of 55, is that really going to change what you do for them? And I'd probably argue, no, you probably still follow them. Gotcha. So based on these guidelines, When would you measure urine albumin versus urine protein in the diagnosis or monitoring of CKD? The guidelines recommend ACR or albumin to creatinine ratio as sort of the test of choice uh, compared to protein to creatinine ratio when you're monitoring patients with CKD. And I think that's what we do most of the time in clinical practice, at least here in Toronto, but that's not necessarily true everywhere. It is important to note that when you're thinking about uh, like a paraprotein related disease, like multiple myeloma or um, amyloid, that the ACR may be normal because we're looking for a non-albumin protein. So in that case, you really need a protein to creatinine ratio or a, you know, easy screening test, maybe a protein to creatinine ratio or an SPEP or a UPEP would be the best test for that. In, in some cases of CKD other than diabetic nephropathy, so particularly in some of the GNs, for example, we still do do 24-hour urine collections because it's more accurate. And if it's going to sort of change how you treat someone in terms of immunosuppression, you want to make sure you're getting a really good quantification, but most of the time ACR is is um, is is good for following patients or good enough. 
um, and easy because you can do a spot urine. And one of the advantages of ACR over PCR is that because it's only one protein that you're measuring the albumin, the labs have actually been able to standardize it, whereas it would be much more difficult to standardize a protein to granite ratio. Based on these guidelines, how do you define a significant decline in GFR? Why would this be important? So the guidelines define a significant decline in GFR as a 25% or greater decline in GFR accompanied by a drop in eGFR category. So stage one, two, three, four, five. Um, I will note the CSN guidelines, which I, I think I would favor their interpretation, is that it doesn't really matter if you drop your category. If you have a 25% decline, that's probably significant. So we're, you know, we're looking at this because we are trying to distinguish when is a patient really progressing in stages of CKD versus just the normal progression of age. And we think that people you know, with age lose between 0.3 to 1 mil per minute per year, sort of depending on risk factors. So we look for you know, evidence of rapid decline to sort of identify who needs to see a nephrologist quicker, who needs to maybe be in a higher risk clinic, and potentially change interventions depending on the type of CKD that we're talking about. The definition of a rapid decline is a sustained decline of more than 5 mil per minute per year. And then I just think it's important to note, like creatinine fluctuates a lot, especially in patients with certain types of kidney disease. So patients with heart failure, for example, and cardiorenal syndrome, or patients with ischemic nephropathy, they may be very volume depleted. And so if you're really trying to you know, track progression of chronic kidney disease, you may need multiple measurements over a certain period of time to really say this is really progression versus just normal fluctuations. In some ways, this next question is a bit of a holy grail. But especially in our inpatients, we're forever trying to figure out whether a change in creatinine reflects an AKI versus a true progression in CKD. Any specific guidance from your own practice or from the guidelines related to that? That's a really good point. And actually, the Canadian guidelines comment that, you know, the problem with these 25% decline is you can't really distinguish AKI from CKD. And so I think, you know, the guidelines do point out that uh, you need three months of uh, reduced kidney function to call it chronic. And so that's what I would really say, because we know that a lot of patients who develop AKI may end up with CKD, which may become, you know, either at that point of where their AKI settled them or just not back to their baseline. Um, But it's really only time that tells. I see. So from an inpatient perspective, we will never know but it's only their own nephrologist who will ultimately know the answer. That's right. And the other thing to keep in mind is that these GFR equations in the inpatient setting when someone has an acute kidney injury is not accurate, right? So sometimes we end up using them when we're trying to dose drugs, but it's really, we have to realize that the patient has to be in a steady state to really calculate their GFR. So, you know, for example, when you stop urinating altogether in the inpatient setting, we're gonna, it's going to take time for your creatinine to go up and your GFR to go to zero using those equations, right? But ultimately that patient's GFR is zero if they're anoric. So what are some predictors of CKD progression? So first of all, I always tell patients what's bad for your heart is bad for your kidneys. So, you know, smoking, obesity, uh, poor glycemic control, poor blood pressure control are all really important as kidney protective therapies in addition to cardiovascular protective therapies. Then avoiding AKI like we talked about because that is a big risk factor for uh, CKD, similarly avoiding nephrotoxins. And then when we, when we see a patient and try to assess, are they going to progress or not? One of the, the two major factors is what GFR they're at. So the higher stage of CKD, the more likely they are to progress. And then uh, their degree of albuminuria. So there's actually an equation called the KFRE, which is like a risk equation for your risk of developing dialysis over two and five years. And the major factors there are albuminuria and GFR. And then, you know, 
how they've progressed in the past also does determine how they're going to progress. So if someone's been very stable for a long period of time, then we have more confidence that they might remain stable. And then, of course, the cause of the chronic kidney disease often does have an effect. Could you expand a little bit on that last point about the cause of kidney disease and the timeline you might expect with different etiologies? Sure. So, I mean, some etiologies are so variable, like diabetic nephropathy, for example. Some patients will have diabetes for 40, 50 years and not develop kidney disease. Some patients have some more rapid progression. And so those are, you know, when you look at the albuminuria, their family history may be relevant in that respect if they have a family history of diabetic uh, nephropathy. You know, if, if someone has, for example, a progressive glomerulonephritis and you had a kidney biopsy that looks very inflamed and they're not responding to treatment, you may be thinking they might progress more rapidly than perhaps their GFR is, is telling you. So that's what I mean by that. These guidelines do provide guidance about blood pressure targets for patients with CKD. But I also know there have been some trials that have come out since then, which give some new evidence about blood pressure targets in CKD. Can you tell me a little bit about what the 2012 guidelines advise versus what you may be doing now in practice? Sure. So I think it's helpful maybe to divide by diabetes status. So yes, diabetes or no diabetes. So for the 2012 Cadigo guidelines, they actually say that if you have diabetes and you don't have albuminuria, treat to less than 140 over 90. But if you have albuminuria, then treat to a lower target of 130 over 80. But I think for the purposes of both clinical practice and the Royal College exam, they're sort of more relevant up-to-date guidelines, like the Diabetes Canada, Hypertension Canada guidelines. They've sort of synchronized their guidelines to say that for everyone with diabetes, less than 130 over 80 should be the target. So I think that would probably be the takeaway for diabetes. And, you know, that's based on some evidence, you know, various trials, but um, it's important to remember that the Accord BP trial, which tried to show lower blood pressure control in diabetics, so this is dog less than 120, was a negative trial. But based on, you know, some data from UKPDS, from the HOT study, looking at different diastolic uh, thresholds, and some other long-term data in type 1 diabetes, putting all that together, those guideline groups have suggested less than 130 over 80. Uh, and so, you know, if the patient can achieve that, that's what we aim for. In non-diabetic CKD, it's a little bit more uh, complicated. So again, the guidelines, the Kidigo 2012 guidelines, uh, differentiate between albuminuria status. So they say in non-diabetic CKD without albuminuria, uh, treat to 140-90. But if you have albuminuria, treat to 130-80. In general, the Canadian guidelines previously would always say less than 140-90 for CKD. But that did change uh, for some patients with chronic kidney disease when the SPRINT study came out, as you alluded to. So in 2015, this was a big trial, uh, you know, 9,000 plus patients. And to get into the study, you could either have high risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, you could have a history of cardiovascular disease, be above 75, or have chronic kidney disease. That was one of the criteria to get in. But they excluded patients with diabetes in SPRINT. And they also excluded patients with chronic kidney disease with more than a gram of proteinuria. So if your GFR was between 20 and 60 and you had less than a gram of proteinuria, you could get into SPRINT. And that study randomized patients to systolic target of less than 120 versus less than 140. And, you know, it was stopped early because they showed an improvement in their, you know, major cardiovascular outcome event. And this was true in patients with CKD. Uh, there was more AKI in the intensive arm. So I think it's important, like we do, um, in some patients with chronic kidney disease who don't have diabetes, we do target a systolic in the 120, 125 range, but it's important to know the inclusion-exclusion criteria of SPRINT, 
you know, make sure that the patients don't have an orthostatic drop in their blood pressure, for example, um, that they're tolerating medication. So the patients in Sprint were on, you know, usually two, three medications. Sometimes we get patients with CKD who are already on five medications, right? So I'm not necessarily going to add a six medication to try to get them to a blood pressure of 120 because then we're really getting into adverse effects, um, you know, area. But I think a lot of chronic kidney disease patients are candidates for SPRINT, and I think that probably will be reflected in, in uh, guideline updates. Speaking a little bit more about blood pressure, the 2012 Cadigo guidelines recommend using an ACE inhibitor or an ARB for first-line treatment of hypertension in patients with CKD. Where do those recommendations come from? Sure. So they suggest an ACE or ARB in people with diabetes if they have more than 30 milligrams per day of albuminuria, and in non-diabetics if they have more than 300 milligrams per day. But I should say in clinical practice, even in patients with you know, lesser degrees of albuminuria with non-diabetic CKD, it usually would still be our first choice blood pressure agent if they have any albuminuria or evidence of CKD. And so this is really related to the blood pressure independent effects of RAS inhibitors. And this is attributed to reducing intraglomerular hypertension and therefore reducing albuminuria in most respects. And so this data goes back to the 90s in type 1 and type 2 diabetes. These were studies that were done to show that ACE inhibitors reduced progression of nephropathy, reduced you know, doubling of serum creatinine, and some hard renal endpoints as well. There's also evidence in patients with type 2 diabetes, for example, that there were less cardiovascular events, for example, with Ramipril and the HOPE study. There's, you know, similar studies in diabetes with ARBs. And then in non-diabetic CKD, RAS blockers have also been shown to slow GFR decline and lower proteinuria more than other antihypertensives. There is less evidence in CKD patients without diabetes at lower degrees of albuminuria. So we're a little bit extrapolating from, you know, diabetes and from what we see with higher degrees of albuminuria. And part of that is just, you know, every time we're looking for CKD progression, the lower risk group you use, the longer you'd have to follow a patient in a study. Can you tell me about any groundbreaking nephrology trials that have come out since the 2012 guidelines were released, which may likely impact recommendations in the next set of guidelines? Yes, I'm very excited too. So when I was an internal medicine resident, I remember a nephrology mentor telling me, you know, nephrology, it's not very innovative, things aren't changing. And I think that's totally not true anymore. In the last five years, we've had a lot of exciting studies. So, you know, after 25 years of really just having RAS blockade, we're really excited about some novel therapies. So I think the first class of drugs to talk about is the sodium glucose co-transporter 2 or SGLT2 inhibitors. So this was a class of drugs originally designed to be glucose lowering agents, right? Because you pee out glucose and also sodium, we've come to find out. But you know, in the last five or so years, there were some major cardiovascular outcome trials that were initially done just to show cardiovascular safety but actually showed cardiovascular superiority in some cases, especially heart failure outcome improvements. And so a lot of these studies had secondary renal benefits that were quite impressive, but were secondary outcomes because they weren't you know, designed to be primary renal outcome trials. So these are studies like Empereg Outcome, the Canvas Program, Declaratimi. They all showed very impressive renal outcomes, but again, not a high-risk population. In 2019, the Credence trial was the first dedicated renal outcome trial with SGLT2 inhibitors. So this study randomized patients to canagliflozin, one of the SGLT2 inhibitors, compared to placebo. And they showed a 30% reduction in the primary renal endpoint of doubling of serum creatinine, ESKD, or renal or cardiovascular death. 
And so Credence included patients only with type 2 diabetes, EGFR 30 to 90, and they all had macroalbuminuria, so more than 300 milligrams per day. Um, and almost all the patients in the study were on RAS blockade. So this was a benefit seen on top of RAS blockade. And then the next really exciting thing that's come out and was the DAFA CKD trial. And so what's really interesting about this study is they didn't only include patients with diabetes. So even though this was initially a diabetes drug, they were actually able to include about a 30 patients, one third of patients without diabetes. And the primary composite endpoint was similar, worsening kidney function defined by a 50% sustained decline in EGFR, onset of ESKD or death to, due to kidney or cardiovascular disease. And they actually stopped the study early after just short of two and a half years because there was a 39% reduction in that primary endpoint. So really impressive hazard ratio of 0.61. And so this was you know, consistent in patients with and without diabetes. So the numbers needed to treat are really very impressive um, with these drugs on top of usual therapy. And there's ongoing studies. One is called the EMPA kidney study, including patients with and without diabetes, even with lesser degrees of albuminuria. So I didn't mention DAPA CKD, you still had to have a significant amount of albuminuria. So we'll see if it works in patients without albuminuria. But, you know, these are really, you know, people in the States are talking about we're going to have to close down dialysis centers because it's going to slow down CKD progression so much. So really exciting new drugs. And then the other new class that is probably going to be positive, but we're waiting for the final results, is a drug called finerenone, which is a non-steroidal uh, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. So sort of the newer version of spironolactone or plerinone, thought to cause maybe less hyperkalemia. And there's a study called Fidelio DKD that's looking at diabetic kidney disease outcomes. And the drug company did announce a couple months ago that the trial was positive, but we're still awaiting the results. So we'll see. And it'll be very interesting to see how we kind of choose different drugs when we actually have more options beyond ACEs and ARBs. That is so exciting. Thank you so much, Dr. Dubrovsky, for your very interesting and very helpful discussion of the 2012 CKD guidelines. I know I've certainly learned a lot, and I think our listeners will too. So thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode on the Cadigo Clinical Practice Guideline for the Evaluation and Management of Chronic Kidney Disease, released in 2012. Special thanks to Dr. Lisa Dubrovsky for joining us today to discuss these guidelines. This episode was recorded by Catherine Luer and produced by Christoph Kowalik. The Internist Guide to podcast series is produced by Catherine Luer and Shaliza Halani. Executive producers are Allison Lai, Zara Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshman Vasanthamohan. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.